Strong Interactions, a podcast about exploring a new frontier in nuclear physics at the upcoming Electron-Ion Collider by Markus Diefenthaler and Maria Zurek. Stories straight from the heart of matter. Welcome to Strong Interactions. In this episode, we will be talking about the connections between the Electron-Ion Collider and high-energy physics in particular parton distribution functions. What are parton distribution functions, or short PDFs, how we extract them, and why they are of importance for nuclear and high-energy physics, we will learn from our expert, Dr. Tim Hobbs. Tim is a theoretical particle physicist at Argonne National Laboratory. He explores quantum chronodynamics, the theory of the strong interactions, and its implications for experiments across a broad range of energies, from the Large Hadron Collider at CERN to neutrino scattering measurements at Fermilab and elsewhere. Hello, Tim. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much, Maria and Marcus, both of you. It's really a thrill to be chatting with you both. The High Energy Physics Program aims to advance three frontiers of scientific discovery, the energy frontier, the intensity frontier, and the cosmic frontier. How are these frontiers defined? The frontiers really represent sort of where the present boundary or limitations in knowledge in each of these three areas happens to reside. So for the energy frontier, it's probably the most obvious that there really is sort of an upper threshold or a ceiling in terms of the energies that are accessible, at least in terrestrial experiments, with the upper limit really probed by measurements at the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC um, at CERN. The reason why it's really considered a frontier, at least one of the important reasons, I think, is on the historical grounds that very often when measurements move to higher energies or to some new territory, they had a habit of revealing new things, new processes. So there's always been an interest in this field in trying to push the threshold or push the limit to higher energies. That's the energy frontier. The intensity frontier that you mentioned is a little bit more subtle, perhaps. This, I think, uh, really refers to processes or types of mechanisms in particle physics that might be rarer, sort of rare processes, where in general, the cross-section, the probability for such an event to occur is relatively small. And so in that being the case, there is a need experimentally to increase event rates. And that's generally um, achieved in collider experiments through, if you'd like, brighter beams or beams with, with more intensity and therefore more collisions. And so that's another frontier where there's an interest to achieve more intensity so as to access these rare processes that are not understood or, or undiscovered even. And then lastly, the cosmic frontier is no less interesting as well. I mean, this really pertains to intersections between particle physics and cosmology, of course where there might have been some influence from different processes in particle physics in the evolution, for instance, in the very early universe, where maybe things that we still have not discovered yet in particle physics may have left imprint or signature in the evolution of the universe that might be revealed by studying things like the cosmic microwave background. So each of these is really an, an interesting main area. And I would also stress that they're also interrelated in, in a number of interesting and subtle ways. So in which efforts of this high energy physics program are you involved in? My interests are pretty broad in general. I think I think of a lot of what I and many of my colleagues do 
relates to what I mentioned just a moment ago, improving theory predictions for uh, measurements at the, at the LHC, at the Large Hadron Collider. Really, that's sort of energy frontier activity, if you'd like. But I think as mentioned in the introduction, a lot of what I and my colleagues do doesn't take place only at high energies. There's similar interests, of course, in doing things at low energies, for instance, for neutrino scattering as well. It turns out that there are limitations in terms of things that we know or understand about the structure of protons or other hadrons has been nuclei that's relevant in each of these various areas. So that means your, your research is also connected to nuclear physics and the EIC. Yes, yes, absolutely. Really, there's an inescapable connection between the two and one that's becoming, I think, more and more important as time goes on. The precision in experiments and then the accuracy in theory predictions for those experiments has reached a level where we have to do better and better in terms of the inputs to, to theory predictions in terms of how much we know about nuclear structure or hadronic structure. And those at least traditionally have been areas that you know concern quantum chromodynamics, the field of the strong interaction that was really based for nuclear physics, but it's absolutely crucial essentially for high energy physics too. So one of the important connections between DEIC and high energy physics are parton distribution functions which encode the information about the internal structure of, for example, the proton. How do PDFs connect nuclear and high-energy physics? So this is a really central question um, in a lot of my research, actually. So these parton distribution functions, really, they're an active area of research. And they're sort of camps in both nuclear physics as well as in high-energy physics that study them. The parton distribution functions really are about quantifying our knowledge of the structure of protons that you know are involved in, in the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. So the PDFs are really relevant to the theory predictions that we would do for the outcomes of experiments at the LHC. So there's, there's a very important sort of high energy physics application of them there. But then going the other direction as well, as I already mentioned, they're very intimately related to the structure of protons. And then you can also define analogous objects for nuclei, uh, nuclear parton distribution functions as well. Our ability to sort of understand the strongly bound structure of QCD matter is very, very closely related to these, these objects that quantify that structure, um, the PDFs. And the PDFs come in many different incarnations. There are various elaborations of them that yield differing in, um, but complementary information. And they're really relevant in both directions, both in nuclear physics and in, in particle physics. How are these parton distribution functions, PDFs, defined? Answering this question, I think, is hard to do without stepping into some level of formality. So the way they're really defined is closely related to something fundamental in, the, in quantum chromodynamics and QCD. These are the so-called factorization theorems. So I mean, really the derivation of the first factorization theorems, which arguably really occurred for deeply inelastic scattering in particular, was really an important event in the development of QCD itself as, as a field. The factorization, QCD factorization is the heart of QCD as a theory. So QCD factorization theorems, what they do is they provide a basis for calculating theoretically the outcome of some sort of scattering, the outcomes of various experiments involving various forms of hadronic data. So it might be proton-proton scattering at the LHC. It might be deeply inelastic scattering, for instance, at the electron-ion collider, as would be the, the main types of measurements done there allows you to write down cross-sections in terms of 
perturbatively calculable things that you understand and then isolate away what is not perturbatively calculable and what can be parameterized and fitted as we do in in phenomenological fits of PDFs. Um, And the idea is that you exploit properties of QCD, the fact that it's in sort of technical language and non-abelian gauge theory with a negative beta function, which is to say that at low energies, the strength of the coupling of quarks and gluons, the fundamental particles in QCD become stronger at low energies. You actually use this to your advantage. And what you do factorizing is you write the total cross-section for a particular experiment basically as a product of things that lie above and below some sort of factorization scale, essentially an energy scale. The higher momentum contributions to the to the cross-section, one side of that product basically are things that you can calculate, we say perturbatively, that is, you know, in a systematically improvable way based on Feynman diagrams. And the things below that factorization scale at sort of lower energies are then inherently non-perturbative. And what those really translate or boil down to being are the parts on distribution functions, the PDFs. And what they are again in sort of formal language is their matrix elements that tell you basically the probability of finding a quark that's struck by some electroweak probe, for instance, in deeply inelastic scattering, the probability of finding that carrying a, a specific momentum of the struck hadron. So it might be a proton. So basically what it tells you is something about the distribution, as the word implies, as the name implies, the distribution of quarks and gluons inside the proton. Factorization theorems relate cross-sections that can be measured in nuclear high-energy experiments to empirical functions, PDFs, that encode information about the inner structure of nucleons and nuclei. PDFs depend on X and parton flavor, where X can be interpreted as fraction of the nucleon's momentum that is carried by the parton struck in the high-energy interaction. They also have a weak dependence on Q-square, referred to as scale dependence. PDFs describe the probability of finding a quark with momentum fraction X inside the nucleon. So when we talk about the factorization theorem, we also hear about the QCD evolution. What does it really mean? Can you tell us what the evolution is? So the factorization theorems are in general written down at a specific choice of a factorization scale. So there's some sort of momentum scale that's introduced basically you know, above which you decide that the physics is is short distance and therefore perturbatively calculable and below which basically then you have, you know, the non-perturbative physics that you can't calculate in that fashion. What this does, though, is it indeed introduces a momentum dependence inside the PDFs themselves. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that what we do is we try to then fit these PDFs based on the world's data, many different measurements. What's in general done is that fit is actually performed at a, at a specific choice of this factorization scale. Typically, it's fairly low energies at something in the ballpark of the proton mass, basically 1 GeV or so. The factorization theorem, though, by introducing this momentum dependence, brings up the question of, okay, how do you actually compute um, how the PDFs change as you go from that low starting scale at which you wish to fit the data up to higher momenta, where the data actually, actually live, if you'd like. And there's formalism to do that. Uh, Guido Altarelli and various colleagues developed a formalism, which is known as DGLAP, which is sort of the standard, again, sort of systematically improvable 
technological framework for actually computing that momentum dependence and going from you know one particular momentum to a different momentum that's evolution and the interesting and cool thing is that that evolution actually translates into a specific dynamical picture of how quarks and gluons actually interact because to calculate that momentum dependence what you really have to do is solve a complicated system of self-coupled equations that that tell you how the momentum carried by a quark shifts from one flavor to another or is radiated to gluons for example and so that's very very complicated and in general that system of equations is is computed and solved at a particular choice of fixed order um, in perturbative qcd so again kind of the standard is what you do is calculate all of this stuff at next to next to leading order where you calculate the perturbatively calculable stuff inside the factorization theorem consistently to, for instance, next to next to leading order. And then you'd also solve the DGLAP evolution equations that tell you how sort of the momentum dependence works again at that order as well, and, and so on. But all of it together basically is what really allows you to relate PDS at one given momentum scale to another and really understand how that dependence goes so that you can actually leverage and use all of the data, the various world's data that in principle are measured at various different energy scales. So what would be an intuitive picture of PDFs? So, I mean, intuitively, it's not completely unlike, for example, sort of the grading curves that you might have uh, encountered that we all remember and love from high school, for instance, of knowing, okay, what's the probability of having a random student in a given class who did really, really well? Well, it depends on some sort of curve, right? A, a distribution, basically. The PDS are something sort of similar. You have various types of flavors of, of quarks, for example, and so that's a degree of freedom of the PDFs. The probability, for instance, of finding an up-type quark inside the proton carrying a momentum very close to the total of the proton, that would be a very large value of a momentum fraction, which we usually call X, which is a dimensionless number, that would be given by the PDF. So it essentially tells you the probability of actually encountering inside the proton a particular quark carrying a specific numerical total of the momentum of the, of the total proton. So how are PDFs related to this goal of, for instance, the EIC of imaging quarks and gluons? Right, that's right. So you mentioned main motivation for the EIC, and it's a, an important interest, I think, among people who just want to understand QCD better. How does QCD yield the properties of the bound states that it, the theory naturally forms at low energies? So the structure of the proton, that's really the, that's really the goal. What does a proton actually look like inside? So a proton, of course, as, as I've already sort of mentioned, it's made up of its constituent particles, so quarks and gluons, and those have to be distributed in some in, in all likelihood, some very complicated fashion inside the proton. The PDFs give you one little bit of information in that regard. The program, I think for the EIC, one of the things that's really interesting about it is the goal of trying to unravel things that are still more complicated than the simplest version of the PDFs that I've been talking about just now. These objects, they have exotic sounding names. They're things like generalized parton distribution functions or transverse dependent TMD distributions. And these things, they're higher dimensional. So they somehow quantify or encode information about how a given quark is distributed both in physical space as well as in momentum space. So it goes beyond a sort of single one-dimensional distribution like the sort that I was just talking about. But there are non-trivial relations among these various distributions. So if you think, as you just mentioned, Marcus, they 
you know, there's a sense in which you can sort of compute integrals over these things. So if you if you integrate over some of the additional degrees of freedom of, say, GPDs or TMDs, you can actually recover then the one-dimensional distribution. So if you'd like, the PDFs are sort of a limiting case or a projection of these more elaborate things that tell you about um, holistically the wave function of the proton and how quarks of different flavor and the gluons are actually distributed really in, in like a three-dimensional space, both physical space and momentum space. The other thing I would quickly mention is that what I keep talking about, again, in a slightly more formal language, is really sort of the unpolarized, the spin unpolarized collinear parton distribution functions. As I mentioned in the introduction, there, there are other things as well. I mean, there are also spin-dependent PDFs, and then there are various other types of matrix elements that you can form that tell you also about how the quarks carry different degrees of freedom um, inside inside the proton. So spin and things like tensor charge or, or various other things that are maybe a little bit more elaborate. But collectively, all of them together, you know, really the goal of, of understanding, you know, like low energy QCD is that all of them together tell you something about what a proton really actually looks like um, on the inside. So what are the properties of PDFs? The PDFs have a variety of properties. So they have properties that you know are somehow rooted in QCD in a formal sense, but then they also just have various statistical properties as well. So there's a sense in which you can form different uh, different combinations of PDFs. So there are sort of valence PDFs, which are formed from combinations of quark and anti-quark parton distribution functions. And the idea is that um, those valence PDFs have particular behaviors in terms of the moment. So if you actually integrate over them, you recover certain, you have to recover certain quantities. So for instance, if you take the lowest order moment or integral of the U valence PDF, then you have to recover the number two because there are two up quarks um, in terms of the valence content of the proton. So these are the types of constraints that come from our knowledge of both of QCD as well as just the statistical properties of the PDFs too. There are various other things that you know one could go on at quite some length that UCD imposes constraints on these PDFs, and actually that's an interesting that's an interesting subject in its own right. Basically, the interaction of the assumptions about how the PDFs should behave and then how they're actually extracted from data is is something that we continue to think about. We should talk about one more property of PDFs: universality. Universality, as as sort of the word might suggest, is that. There really isn't an, an, an invariance, basically, where you know the U-type PDF is what it is, right? I mean, you you don't have any dependence on a specific experiment. The proton is a is a universal object. So a proton here on Earth is the same as a proton over on Mars, and the up quark PDF in one is the same as the up quark PDF in another. So it's it's simply um, an unchanging property of the proton, you know, how these objects are actually distributed in them. The problem, of course, is that, you know, that's all well and good, but then you do have to perform various experiments to try to unbury these, these objects from the data. One of the things that, that all of us struggle with, both as theorists and, and experiments, is understanding basically the ingredients in the factorization theorems that I just talked about, which actually allow you to separate process-dependent ingredients in the effort to actually access the structure of the proton from things that actually are invariant and independent of the experiment. And so actually this subject of universality gets at really the notion of trying to simultaneously learn what the PDFs are from a wide class of various different types of data in, in a variety of different experiments. The idea that 
many different experiments might tell you one little thing in particular about the PDS, but they're all probing the same consistent underlying object. So how do we extract these PDFs from experiments? I think it's worth mentioning, first of all, I, I sort of said earlier in our discussion that the PDFs are inherently non-perturbative. And what that means, again, is that it's difficult to impossible to actually calculate them really from first principles on the basis of QCD. Now, there's one small caveat to that. So there are growing efforts by some, some of my theoretical colleagues in the Lattice QCD community to use a certain type of non-perturbative method to try to actually simulate the PDFs. And there's a lot of interesting intellectual development in that area. And it'll continue to develop. But until then, what we're left with is really relying on the factorization theorems that I just mentioned, and, and instead taking all of the data that is measured you know, at the LHC, the electron-ion collider will furnish a great deal of data as well, and many other facilities, neutrino scattering experiments, JLab, legacy experiments, for instance, the Tevatron at Fermilab. You take all of this data together, and then what you do is you basically freely and flexibly parameterize the PDFs that I was talking about consistent with the general properties that I was describing. They have to have a certain behavior, for instance, they're limited, they vanish at x equals to zero and x equals to one. And then what you do is you, you know, in an approach such as the one used by my colleagues and me, we just write down a large multidimensional parameterization and then try to fit all of the world's data basically that we can to, to then try to learn what the true underlying parameterization actually is. It's a very challenging and large undertaking because it, I mean, obviously there's a great deal of theory that gets involved, you know, in terms of, again, these factorization theorems and actually calculating them to higher and higher orders in, in the underlying QCD um, perturbation theory. But then just understanding all of the data and understanding, um, you know, different pulls basically from different experiments on the PDFs and trying to actually really try to constrain things. It's it's extremely non-trivial and it involves a great deal of sort of um, big data methods. So much so that many of us now turn to techniques from artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to help uh, get a handle on that. PDFs describe intrinsic properties of nucleons and nuclei and are thus universal. They are extracted from cross-section measurements in QCD fits based on factorization theorems. The complex x-dependence of the shape of PDFs for the various parton flavors is encoded in shape parameters. In modern QCD fits, an order of 100 parameters is used. Shapes and normalizations of PDFs are constrained by measurements from numerous experiments, typically amounting to order of 5,000 independent data points. As it involves statistical unfolding from experimental data, the extractions of PDFs is commonly referred to as an inverse problem. I've talked about the strategy for trying to extract the PDFs from data um, and the fact that it's it's very difficult because essentially data furnish one side of an equation, basically. And what you have to end up doing is you have to essentially unbury the PDFs from the data. That is an inverse problem in and of itself, where I don't simply take something and you know directly predict the outcome. What in fact I have to do is I have data for structure functions or cross-sections or whatever. And then from that, I have to essentially infer the PDFs. 
It's actually a rather subtle point. It's attempting shorthand. Many people maybe understandably take to say that you basically measure the PDFs. And that's not quite correct, really. What you do is you measure empirically observable things. You measure cross-sections, as I keep saying, or, or, or structure functions. And then from that, you have to then un- unbury the PDFs. And that's an inverse problem. If I would like to look up PDFs, like how can I do it or where can I do it? At face value, it seems like it's just a trivial question. Well, you just look it up, but but it's actually not. <laughs> it's not trivial. And it took the community really quite a long time to arrive at consistent standards for conveying the PDFs, looking them up, implementing them in calculations and, and so on. That standard that's that's now in use is the so-called Lesouche Accord standard, LHA. Um, and in fact, there's you know a packaging framework called LHA PDF that any of the listeners can can just go to Google and type LHA PDF and you'll you'll find it. And in fact, there's also a consistent set of basically computational standards for invoking PDFs that are extracted by different fitting groups. So one of the fitting groups in which I'm involved is the CTEC T group, CT. And anytime um, that the group finishes a global fit, it in general publishes that, you know, there's a, there's a publication and a paper, but then numerical interpolation tables that allow you to interpolate the value of the PDF, both in terms of the momentum fraction X, as well as in terms of the Q squared that we, that we mentioned a little bit before, there are these massive numerical tables that you can invoke and then use those. And, and you can you can essentially interface all manner of codes and different coding languages to those tables. If you wanted to just do a little calculation, um, you wanted to actually, for fun, calculate on the basis of a particular set of PDFs what um, some structure function might be, then, then you can actually do that. Basically, all of the various fitting groups, both for, for proton PDFs as well as for determinations of the PDFs of nuclei, even of mesons, um, you can find all of that stuff there. And there's all manner of interesting calculations that you could do more or less on the fly. So what do we know about the PDFs? Uh, you, you mentioned various results, but how would you summarize our word knowledge on PDFs, let's say, for instance, for the proton? Quite a lot is known. Quite a lot is known. I mean, it, this field is not that young. It's been around for a few decades now. So I mean, at an earlier stage, for instance, the separation among the different quark flavors that I mentioned before. So there's uptype and downtype. And then I mentioned that there are valence PDFs. And then the flip of the valence PDFs is the C PDFs or the QQ bar type PDFs that are generated through radiation of QQ bar pairs from gluons. Our ability to separate all of these different things has improved tremendously. The earliest PDF fits for the proton, as you asked about, Marcus, had far fewer tunable parameters because there simply there weren't as many data basically that were sensitive to the full degrees of freedom that in full generality you might imagine actually existing. Basically, our knowledge of the PDF's X dependence over a very wide range of X has improved considerably to the point where PDF uncertainties in, in many regions that are of really importance for a lot of LHC experiments, for instance, has, has achieved maybe few percent level, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on the specific observable. But that said, there are a lot of open frontiers. There are frontiers both in terms of the formalism. You know, I, I kept mentioning the, the QCD factorization theorems. Those are understood relatively well 
expert unpolarized measurements, spin independent measurements involving structure functions, for example. But as you start introducing additional scales, basically momentum scales into the factorization theorems, as would be appropriate, for instance, for measuring the transverse momentum dependence, it starts to get sort of hairier, actually. So there's a lot of activity in just understanding the factorization theorems and their limitations how to use them actually in, you know, in terms of implementation and actually learning about PDFs and related objects from global fits. And then there are many other things to gesture at. I mean, we don't know the PPFs very well at very high X or at very low X. And, and so there's uh, different types of proposed programs to try to get at the PDFs in those regions as well. But even in intermediate X, away from very, very high or very, very low X, in those cases too, the precision is still not adequate to really take advantage of the full experimental precision that's available at the Large Hadron Collider, for example. So if you want to, if you want to measure some electroweak cross-section to super, super high precision and then in principle do better constraining some dark matter scenario, for, for example, we could still basically squeeze a lot more out of the PDFs and improve improve that in terms of our ability to actually really test the standard model. So I, it's it's a field that has a, really is still a long ways to go. It has many different tentacles and offshoots um, in different areas of QCD, both at higher energies and in lower energies. So there's a huge amount of activity that's still waiting to be done. So what EIC will bring to the table? Yeah, the EIC is a really is a really exciting program. I think one thing that I would stress is, I mean, I think the interest in the electron ion collider comes from many different quarters. You know, traditional nuclear physicists obviously are very interested in the EIC, obviously, um, that goes without saying, but also particle physicists too. The EIC really, it's a particle physics machine because it's capable of measuring at sufficiently high energies that we can do things like testing the factorization theorems that I keep mentioning to higher accuracy and really you know, develop QCD formally a little bit more. So it's really interesting in that respect. What's cool, I think, about the EIC too is that it has at its disposal, I mean, obviously it's very high luminosity as a, as a machine and it traverses a region in the, if you'd like, in the parameter space, that's very interesting in that it covers this transition from, you know, really non-perturbative physics into perturbative physics that we don't understand so well. But then there are all manner of interesting measurements beyond just getting some additional structure function. You can do cool things in terms of measuring um, the deeply inelastic scattering induced production of jets, for example, or, or processes at very high X where cross-sections tend to be rapidly falling, where you could actually try to really observe this and, and improve, for instance, our knowledge of the PDFs directly at high X. And this isn't to even mention, there are all kinds of other things that could be done at the EIC too. There are, you know, again, by merit of the high luminosity, there are interesting probes actually that are essentially direct probes for BSM physics that you could do at the EIC as well, that's interesting to, to particle physicists too. I think the breadth of the program and the promise of having really high luminosity in corners of sort of like the phase space that hasn't really been deeply probed before, that I think really excites us. The high luminosity and high depolarized beams at the electron-ion collider will allow probing the quark-gluon structure of nucleons and nuclei, leading to high-precision determination of PDFs. We have learned today from Tim how PDFs are defined, how they can be extracted from experimental data, and how they connect high energy and nuclear physics. 
In upcoming episodes of Strong Interactions, we will discuss further how we can investigate the spatial and spin structure of nucleons and nuclei.